We've come to our time in God's Word. Michael's working. There we go. Um, what we've done in it, at Temple Hills is, is, is intentionally structured our services so that this time of preaching the word takes up the most time. Now, how long that most time is depends on how long the passage is or how long winded the preacher is. You got an extra hour of sleep this morning. <laughs> so that might be an extra hour of preaching. But really what it is is that we're trying an experiment to see if God's word is sufficient to keep God's people. Right? So that every single thing that happens in our lives, every single Sunday, year after year, what we're not doing is leaning on what's happening in the world to determine what we're going to talk about on the Sunday. Rather, we're leaning on that God's word is sufficient to satisfy and strengthen God's people, whatever is going on. And so we give our time and attention to working through books of the Bible as we've begun doing about 10 weeks ago now through the book of Philippians. We believe that what was true thousands of years ago is still true today. 2,000 years ago, hardships were, was, were pressing upon the apostle Peter. Persecutions were starting to rise. People were turning away from Jesus. It was unpopular to follow the hard teachings of Christ similarly to what we experience today. And as many turned away, Jesus asked his disciples and Peter in particular, will you go away as well? Peter responded the way we, you and I ought to respond. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Thanks. That's why we open our Bibles and preach through the Bible. God alone has the words of eternal life. And so if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to the book of Philippians. We're nearing the end of our study through this book. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 2 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 982. Philippians 4, 2 through 9. The Apostle Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me together for the gospel, labored side by side together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence 
If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. In this passage, we see how to pursue peace in the midst of interpersonal conflicts in verses 2 and 3, and more broadly in verses 4 through 9, how to pursue peace as believers living in a hostile and conflict-filled world. And I know that for many of you, the concept that there will be conflict in the Christian life is quite shocking. What with your stellar experience of perfect bliss and peaceful tranquility always as a believer. But for the one or two of us who've been Christians for a while, who've been members in a church for a while, I trust that this passage will be helpful to us. And here's what I think is Paul's main idea in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. And so the main point of the sermon. Amidst conflict, pursue and find true peace in Christ. Amidst all kinds of conflict, pursue and find true peace in Christ Jesus. So what should we do when we experience conflict? How can we pursue peace? Four actions we see in this text, which will serve as the four points of the sermon. Number one, reach agreement on common ground. We see that in verses two through three. Reach agreement on common ground. Number two, recruit the church to help. Recruit the church to help. We see that in verse three. Number three, rejoice in and rest in the Lord. We see that in verses four through seven. And fourthly, reflect upon what's praiseworthy. We see that in verses eight through nine. So four actions we need to take in the midst of conflicts as we seek to pursue peace. Number one, reach agreement on common ground. Number two, recruit the church to help. Number three, rejoice in and rest in the Lord. And number four, reflect upon what's praiseworthy. First, reach agreement on common ground. Well, we see that in verse two. Look there with me again. It's, you have your Bibles open. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I notice Paul takes the bold step of calling out folks from the pulpit. Or rather calling out two sisters by name in this letter. Which signals that whatever conflict they were having seems to have been significant. I mean, news of it traveled 800 miles from the province of Philippi all the way to Paul's prison cell in Rome. But what the specific cause of the conflict is between Euodia and Syntyche, we don't know. We're not told. And we need not presume or jump to conclusions. Right. And neither are we to resort to critically caricaturizing these two women for this conflict. You know how women are, drama queens. Super emotional and always sensitive. They stay in some kind of mess, some kind of conflict. Well, that's more of a worldly presumption that is sometimes true. 
than was fitting for these two sisters. These are not catty busybodies who find themselves in some kind of rift again. Now notice how Paul commends them in verse 3 as indispensable gospel partners. He says that they labored with him side by side in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And for all modern critics who would summarily dismiss the Apostle Paul as some misogynistic madman who needs to be completely canceled, please read the Apostle Paul. All of the Apostle Paul in context. In the first century, when this book was written, it would be unheard of to care enough about women, about two women to single them out in a public letter to a large group, as Paul does here. And it would even be more absurd to commend two women on the same level as other noteworthy men as Paul does here. I mean, what Paul says in verse 3, this, this term of fellow workers, is how Paul has described super commendable people earlier in this letter, like Timothy and Epaphroditus who he's commended and called out for their stellar gospel service. And right alongside them are people like Euodia and Syntyche, commended for their stellar gospel service. So it, it just emphasizes how incredibly valuable and important women are in the work of gospel ministry. For all our sisters here, especially maybe for our young girls, I hope that you hear and understand that. Yes, Paul says plainly in places like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that certain things are restricted only to men. And that passage, he restricts the authoritative office of pastor and the authoritative function of preaching only to men and restricts women from that. But in no way does that mean that Paul demeaned women as invaluable and useless. In no way did Paul demote women to simply watching the kids doing service or fixing the potluck meals. Those things are fine and good, but those are not singularly for sisters. No, women, like men, are vital parts of the body of Christ, are vital members of the local church. These two women, like many of you sisters, are mature, godly, gospel-centered, gospel-driven, ministry-minded disciple-makers on their way to heaven. But it shows us that even Christians who are mature, godly, gospel-centered, gospel-driven, ministry-minded disciple-makers on their way to heaven can have conflict with one another. In other words, spiritual maturity and ministry activity do not absolve you from experiencing conflict. Rather, those conflicts become arenas, become opportunities for you to deepen and display your maturity and for you to continue doing gospel ministry. And so pay attention to how Paul engages these two sisters. He doesn't take sides commending one for being in the right and chiding the other for being wrong. And neither does Paul take a neutral stance, 
calling them simply to let bygones be bygones. Nor does he adopt a hands-off approach. Uh, y'all just separate and stay away from one another if y'all can't get along with each other. Rather, he pleads with them both individually to agree in the Lord. To literally be of the same mind. It's the same phrasing he uses back in chapter 2, verse 2, where he told them to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he fleshed that out saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each person look not only to their own interest, but to the interest of others. And then he grounded that mindset in chapter 2 in the mind of Christ. Saying in verse 5, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Emptied himself. Humbled himself by becoming a man, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross for you and me. Paul doesn't call these sisters to find common agreement on whatever issue that's in question that is causing this conflict. Rather, Paul tells them to find common agreement in Christ. Find common agreement in the gospel, in what truly binds you and me together. Whatever the problem is, as significant as it might seem to you two, is not as significant as your common bond in Jesus. Don't let any disagreement allow you to disregard or discredit and disrupt your fellowship in Jesus. And Paul tells them, in other words, remember who you are. Sisters, united together in the blood of Christ. Remember what Jesus did to make you his own. He shed his very blood to have you, Euodia, and you, Syntyche, become God's children. And as God's children, then fellow heirs, fellow workers with Christ. Remember all your service together. Remember how you labored side by side at one moment. He's telling them to rehearse what's really true. And remember where it's all leading, you know. Heaven. Your names are written in the book of life. If heaven opened up its roll book, the same Paul who's opened up this book and named Euodia and Syntyche, you'd find that your names are not only in this letter, your names are written in heaven. Oh, you are going to be with God one day. You'll spend eternity, Euodia and Syntyche, together. So don't let any temporal issue tear you apart. Saints, this is such an important and instructional model for us. As Christians, our first and most foundational bond is in Jesus Christ. And that deep bond in him ought to be preeminent over any other thing that might tempt to divide us. That doesn't mean we we won't have any conflict. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't say anything when any conflict arises, that we should just dismiss any conflict when it comes up. But it does mean that we should, should work to see each other not primarily through our differences or disagreements, 
but see each other primarily through our union in Jesus Christ. Amen. You're my brother. You're my sister. We believe the same gospel. We believe that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You, you're my brother and sister, and I will love you with the love of the Lord. You're my brother or sister who's labored with me for years in the same church. We've evangelized together. We've instructed each other's kids. Right? We've gone through hardship together. We need to remember who we are in Christ and what we've done together in Christ. And remember where it's all leading. We're going to glory together. Amen. Friends, this is not a perfect one-to-one -one match. But you know, when you find your name on the membership role of a local church, if that local church is, is taking seriously regenerate church membership, only welcoming into the membership those who are born again by Christ, who have placed their faith in him. But when your name is in the membership directly, directory, it should mean that your name is also in the membership role in heaven. And so why would you dare beef with somebody who, whose name is on the same page as you in the membership directory? Or in a few pages away from you in the membership directory when you understand that your names are both in the heavenly directory as well. If we're going to be together forever, then we cannot allow what's happening now to tear us apart. Friends, these truths need to dominate our minds and, and, and lead us to mending any relationship with one another as we share the mind and model of Jesus Christ who lovingly sought us out in conflict. When we were waging war against God, Jesus came near to us to reconcile us both to God and to each other. In Christ, then, we determine to live like what we are. Reconciled to Christ and already reconciled to one another. Friends, that's foundational, not only when conflicts happen, but for all of our Christian lives. Our disagreements ought not to automatically mean disunity or disfellowship. I mean, sometimes a, a disagreement on a crucial doctrine might mean that. But a disagreement on who to vote for ought not to mean we can't fellowship with one another. Our unity is in Christ. Can we agree in the Lord? Our disagreements over the proper or right social actions or policies to address societal evils ought not mean we can't sing the Lord's praises together on Sundays our differences of skin color and perhaps different perceptions and interpretations of events in America especially as it relates to race ought not to mean that we cannot share the Lord's table together that we both believe the same gospel that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone is what saves sinners like us friends this is not a reductionistic just believe the gospel and don't be concerned about anything else mindset. Rather, it's a far deeper because we believe the gospel All right. All right. and because we believe the power of the gospel to unite us together, we look at everything else, including our disagreements and differences through the lens of the gospel. 
And we are determined to love one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever the conflict, we trust that we can reach common agreements in the Lord. We are committed to pursue peace and protect our unity in him. But part of that pursuit means involving other people. And so a second action we must take when there's conflict among us, number two, recruit the church to help. Or recruit the church to help. After specifically pleading with Euodia and Syntyche in verse two, look at how Paul widens the circle in verse three to, to see that these two sisters are reconciled. He says there, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Uh, who this true companion is, we have no idea. It seems to be a singular person as the you there at the beginning of verse 3 is singular, not plural. But it could be that, that Paul has in mind not a specific person by name, but, but rather any individual or individuals perhaps who, who know these sisters well, or who know of their issues and who will be willing to jump in them with them. What's important is not the identity of this true companion, What's important is rather the reality that outside help is needed often to reconcile two people in conflict. But notice, it's outside help inside the church. This true companion is a member of the Philippian church to whom Paul is writing. Yes, sometimes there may be the need to go outside your local church for help, for some expertise that's not found in your local church. That, that's good and fine. But often, a first line and a final line of help come from other church members. There ought to be people in the church who are able and own the responsibility to help others pursue peace. I mean, Paul says to the Roman church in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. You're equipped with the spirits. You're equipped with the scriptures. You're equipped with the personal history of one another to instruct and counsel and help one another. I wonder how that might deepen and transform your study habits. Have you considered that your reading and understanding of God's word and other materials can be an act of love for neighbor? As you read and grow in your understanding of God's word, you not only grow in personal knowledge of the Lord, you also grow in what you can give to others. The wisdom that you soak in from the word, you can now ring out on them in whatever situation they're going through. That same mindset might lead you to widen what you're reading, to reading good books on marriage, even if you're single, or books on singleness, even if you're married, or books on depression or abuse or pornography or same-sex attraction, even if you don't struggle or haven't experienced any of those things. There's a good chance that somebody in our church has, and that those issues are at the root of some tension or conflict, either in relationships or in their own souls. And so you read to be ready to help them. 
our mindset as church members ought never to be, well, that's their problem. I'm just going to mind my business. Friends, when you became a church member, your business became caring for the well-being of other brothers and sisters. So Paul commands this true companion to help these two women. And on the flip side, when you became a Christian and a church member, your business became letting others into your life to help you. You see, Paul's pleas for church members to help these women only goes as far as these two women welcome help. It's the same in, in you and my life. And friends, some of you may be struggling through conflicts in your marriage, conflicts in your relationship with family members, conflicts in relationships with other church members, and one of the reasons you might not be seeing any improvements is because you've cut off the conflict from others. Friends, that is not wise, and that is not biblical. Well, what's leading you to that? That maybe it's pride or fear of man that, that's the cause of you keeping conflicts closed off. You don't want others to think badly about you. You don't want others to know that your life, your marriage, your family isn't perfectly put together. You, you care too much about what others might think about you. Saints, that kind of pride that worries about others' reactions might be adding to slowly killing your relationships and keeping you from the life support you desperately need. Humility welcomes help. So humble yourself and welcome outside help from other brothers and sisters inside the church. Thank God for the several examples we've seen of that here in our local church. Many of you have invited me and Pastor Warner into conflicts that you've experienced with, with other members, with your spouses, with family members. Many of you have involved other members in those conflicts outside of me and Pastor Warner. That's totally fine. Since that's one of the signs of a healthy church. A healthy church is not a conflict-free church. That kind of church does not exist. A healthy church is one where members do all they can not to allow conflicts to kill relationships. And so even if somebody else needs to be brought in so that we don't completely fall out, we're willing to do that. Friends, do that today. If you're in the midst of a conflict with one another. Do that today if those conflicts are lingering and perhaps growing, even if nobody else knows about it, but you or that other person. Or even if it's just residing in your own heart. Do not stay quiet. Recruit the church to help you. That's part of why God puts you in a church. So recruit other church members to help you to reconcile relationships. To help you pursue peace in the midst of interpersonal conflicts. As we move to the rest of this passage, we see Paul moves from specifically addressing how to pursue peace in interpersonal conflicts, especially this one between Euodia and Syntyche, to now more comprehensively how to pursue peace in the midst of external conflicts, pressing upon believers in a fallen world. 
The issue would have been especially relevant to the Philippian Christians experiencing hardships and backlash and persecution for their faith. How could they possibly find peace in such a hostile environment? Paul tells them, and by extension us, in verses 4 through 9. And notice here, just as you glance at those verses, how they're dominated by commands. Rejoice twice in verse 4. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone in verse 5. Do not be anxious about anything in verse 6. Let your request be known to God at the end of verse 6. Think about these things in verse 8. Practice these things in verse 9. Pursuing peace is not a passive matter. Paul presses on. It requires some activities, some actions. We'll combine some of those actions as we walk through the remaining verses as Paul talks about pursuing peace, what it looks like in the midst of a conflict-filled world. So number three, the third thing we need to do is rejoice in and rest in the Lord. Rejoice in and rest in the Lord. Look at verse four. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. If you remember, it's the same command he gave back in chapter three, verse one, to rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It is safe for you. But how can you rejoice when there's so much conflict around you? In the church and more expansively in the world. Well, because for a Christian, our joy is not dependent upon circumstances. But it's founded in a person. In the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can have joy in him because of who he is and what he's done for us. By his death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us from every one of our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved us from every ounce of experiencing God's wrath. And the Lord Jesus Christ has secured for us eternity in heaven. I mean, just look back again at how Paul describes the certain status of Euodia and Syntyche and and Clement and the rest of the fellow workers and every single gospel believer in verse 2. Our names are in the book of life. And friends, that reality alone, above any circumstance, either of suffering or success, ought to bring us joy. I mean, consider Jesus' own words to his followers in, in Luke chapter 10. They just come in from a very successful ministry outing, and they were incredibly happy. Luke chapter 10, verse 17 says, they returned from this ministry endeavor with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. But Jesus responded three verses later in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. That your names are written in heaven. Jesus, the eternal son of God, is the subject matter expert on heaven. I mean, he left heaven to come to earth. And so he, above anyone else, knows what heaven is like. And notice what he says here about heaven. What does he want us, the disciples, to know about heaven? Heaven is a world of joy. Why? Because heaven is where the happy God dwells. 
and where we will forever be with him because of what Christ has done for us. We can rejoice always in him and in the glorious inheritance that we have in him. And we can and should also rest in him. We'll look at verses 5 through 7. And Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The key that informs those three verses there is at the end of verse five. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. The Lord is coming back. For Paul, that's not just some theological truth that he holds in his head. For Paul, that's the certain hope that gets him out of bed in the morning. For Paul, that's what motivates him to endure all kinds of persecutions and hardships. It's the hope that drives him to shake off the chills and discomforts of a cold, damp prison cell and write to encourage and comfort other Christians like the Philippians. The Lord Jesus is near. He's at hand. And all that comes with his return is near, is at hand. That glorious inheritance that we talked about. The glorious transformation that will be ours when, when our lowly bodies will be instantly transformed to be like his glorious body. And the glorious reality that as soon as he comes back, every single wrong will be right. He will make all things right when he returns. Do you believe in that? Are you resting in that? If so, it ought to transform how you live now. Ought to transform what you're known for now. And so Paul can command at the beginning of verse 5 to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Because the Lord is at hand. That word reasonableness is better translated gentleness or graciousness. It's the idea of having a forbearing spirit towards others, even when they harm you. It's not exacting vengeance for every offense or hurt. Not lashing out at every real or perceived slight. Not being retaliatory, but rather responding with wrongs with kindness. Friends, that kind of attitude is absolutely essential to maintain and strengthen relationships in the church. Whereas we said earlier, some kind of conflict, some kind of wrong at some point is inevitable, even if not intentional. And that sort of attitude is essential as we live in a hostile world where there is often intentional wrong, intentionally aimed at you and me as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ. But what is the disposition we're to be known for in such times of conflict and confrontation? Well, it's not to come out as a bulldog or as a bully. I mean, some of us might feel justified in that approach. They come at me strong, I'm going to come back at them strong. Fight fire with fire. But friends, that's the wrong kind of tool. The wrong kind of tactic. 
You won't heal a wounded relationship with a hammer. And you won't win a wicked world with the same kind of tactics that the wicked world uses. Abrasiveness, name calling, harshness. No, contrast is what creates conviction. When they come at you with lies and you respond in love. When they come at you with hatred and you respond with humility. When they even go as far as trying to kill you and you kill them with kindness. Paul is in prison while he's writing this. And what's he doing in prison? What's he known for? What is not being an irate inmate? Going at the guards. Criticizing the Roman government. Fighting back for all his rights as a Roman citizen. Now what is Paul known for in prison? Jesus Christ. And Christ alone. Remember he said back in verse 12. I want you to know brothers. That what has happened to me. Has really served to advance the gospel. As it has become known in this prison city. Right? Throughout the whole imperial guard. That my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul had a Christ-like submission to God's will, trusting that God was using him to win the wicked people, even trying to kill him. Even as the guards might be beating and berating and mocking Paul, trying to squeeze out Paul's life, Paul is trying to save theirs by offering the only word of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing he tells the Philippians to do. Later in chapter 2, to, to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, holding fast, holding forth the word of life. It's what he's called us to do. Not to be so concerned or to be so known for fighting back to make things right. God's coming back. The Lord is near. He'll do that. Vengeance is his. He will repay. We can rest in him and respond to conflicts then to win critics, to win opponents with a gentle spirit, to win them, not to war against them. Saints, I wonder, would you be guilty of being known for gentleness? Is your reasonableness what's known to everybody? As people come at you, as people criticize you, as people condemn your beliefs and your actions, is your first thought to go back at them? Or do you actually care that they would know Jesus Christ? Our posture says a lot about what we actually believe. Our posture says a lot about what we actually want for others. Paul says, let your gentleness be known, your reasonableness be known, be on display to everyone. Paul goes on in verses 6 and 7 to show that the Lord's nearness not only results in, or should result in our reasonableness being known to everyone, but the Lord's nearness should also result in an inner peace in our souls. You see, the fact that the Lord is at hand, that his physical return is near, needs to also be joined with the reality that he is present and near and accessible to us even now through prayer. Prayer is the pathway to peace even when life is full of problems. 
We need to be reminded of that, instructed of that, even as Paul does here. Because so often we allow problems to dominate our life and we keep God at a distance. But we need God. We need to run to his presence and not to look to our own resources. So, so see how, how Paul negatively commands the Philippians and, and us in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't let any of life's issues, any of life's problems, any of life's cares weigh you down. Don't let any of them cause you to lose hope or to be afraid or to be agitated or to be unsettled or to be worried. You might say, that's easy for you to say, Paul, you don't have my problems. To which Paul might fire back, problems? I got problems. I'm the one in prison, remember? I've got things to worry about. There's a death sentence hanging over my head. Any second the emperor says, done, it's done. And yet I ain't worried at all. I'm in here sleeping on this stone like a baby. I'm in here writing letters to y'all. How is that? Because Paul has done what he commands us to do here. He's given all his problems over to the Lord. I notice here the weight isn't so much on the prohibition. Don't be anxious. All right, so we don't need to beat each other up. The Bible says don't be anxious. That ain't what the, the, what the weight is. The weight is not on the prohibition. The weight is on the provision. Don't be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Ask God for things. Ask God for help. Ask God to give you things. And do it with an attitude of gratitude with gratefulness that God has given you this amazing tool of a hotline to heaven 24-7. And he's promised that he always answers. Old Mahalia Jackson song says he put a telephone in my heart and I can call God anytime. Saints, you know this experientially. There are many cares and conflicts and problems that we will face as believers in a fallen world. The question is not, will we have conflicts? The question is, what will we do with them? Will we carry them or we cast them upon the Lord, trusting that he cares for us? Many of us choose the former. Carrying our cares and burdens seems right. right? We feel like we have the natural resources to make something happen. Right, I can solve this situation. This is what's most tangible and real to us. We can figure our way out of it. But if we were honest, it never goes the way we expect it to go, does it? I mean, you worrying about things only causes you more worry. It doesn't really change the situation. It ends up eating you up. Sucks away all your energy and all your joy and replaces it with grumbling with fear, with frustration. What if we actually did what we were commanded? What if we actually gave everything over to God? Or what if we cast all our anxieties upon him? Now what's keeping you from that? 
Make us our view of prayer. That prayer needs to be formal and impressive and sound spiritual. And so we pray, Lord, please lead, guide, and direct me. We pray, let your will be done. We pray, Lord, glorify your name. And friends, those are good prayers. Those are godly prayers. Those are biblical prayers. But when was the last time you double-clicked down on them and drilled down to the things that are deeply worrying your heart? When was the last time you, you prayed about the things you talked to your girlfriends about? What was the last time you prayed about the things you post about? What was the last time you prayed about the things that are swirling around your head and you think the outlet is to write a long to-do list? That'll make me feel better. Well, maybe. But why do we keep living as functional atheists? Finding outlets in anything and everything except God himself. Why do we keep casting all our anxieties and burdens and cares on everyone but God himself? What kind of view do we have of God? If the Lord already says, I know your hearts, and he wants us to cry out to him from our hearts, why do we keep keeping God in the distance? What if we actually did what the Lord did? Through everything that's burning up inside of us, upon the throne of grace. He's not going to spit back in your face, you weakling. He's not going to criticize you. You got to pray to me about that. He's going to say as your child says, or how you feel when your child asks you for something. I'm actually glad you're dependent upon me. I'm actually glad that you know that you need me for help. I'm actually glad that you bring everything to me. That's how a loving father responds to his children. And then what will you find when you do that thing? Notice Paul's promise in verse 7. What will be the result of constant, prayerful dependence upon God? Peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A peace that is unexplainable in the world's eyes. Surpasses all natural reason. How can they have peace with all these problems? With all these persecutions? Because God grants it to, grants it to those who are his. And who lean heavily upon him. Saints, let's mark today. As the day that we believe God's word. Let's mark today as the day that we take God at, at his word. We can't have true peace in the Lord, from the Lord, when we pray. So let me encourage you today to make today, November 5th, the kind of flag in the sand day, in the sand day, when you say, I'm not going to allow these things to beat me up or to burn me up any longer. I'm going to commit to taking everything from the Lord. Let me encourage you today to come back at 5 p.m. as a kind of first baby step of faith. And praying with your brothers and sisters here. If, if you think that you are sufficient in praying, you probably are further away from being sufficient in praying than you think. Right? We need help. Right? Let me just be very clear. I struggle hard at this. Right? 
as your pastor. Throughout the week, there are things swirling around in my mind 24-7 about how to care for my family and for you all and for my own soul and for others. And I'm thinking constantly, what can I do? What can we do? Right? I need to be better trained in this. All right, so when I come back at 5 p.m. to pray, it's not because I got to unlock the doors and lead the service. It's because I need to pray more. All right? I need training wheels to pray better. I need to hear y'all praying for stuff. I'm like, oh, I don't even pray for that. Thank you, Lord, by, by shepherding my soul to pray. So come at 5 p.m., not because it's a duty, but because you understand I've got to learn to pray more. Amen. I've got to make it a natural thing. When I'm burdened, I'm praying. And I'm praying individually and with other brothers and sisters. Let's collectively cast our cares upon the Lord. And see if he doesn't start to move the needle of our heart from running anxious to resting in him. Rejoice in the Lord and rest in him and find true peace. Fourthly and lastly in this passage, Paul charges us to reflect upon what's praiseworthy to, to find true peace. Number four, reflect, reflect upon what's praiseworthy. Look with me at verse eight. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think, think about these things. As we just saw in verse 7, Paul said that the peace of God would guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus when you pray. Would guard your hearts and minds from what? From anxiety, from worry. Well, here he tells us that for that to be actualized to the fullest, we need not only pray, but we need also to fill our minds up with the right things. Say, so some of us, need to be broken out of a kind of persistent pessimism that only sees bad around us all the time. That focuses only on the negative. That doesn't mean we live with the mindset of, of life being all pie in the sky. It doesn't mean we, we live with our heads buried in the sand. But it means that we ought to live realizing that God is actually alive. And that his truth and his beauty and his wisdom permeate every single facet of society and every single second of every single day. And so Paul, writing to the Philippians, enduring conflicts in their church and experiencing conflict from the culture. Paul, who himself is in a little small prison cell, tells us to think about all that's good and praiseworthy all around you even right now. Whatever is true, meditate on that. Don't keep giving yourself to untruths. Meditate, soak in the truth. Don't be giving yourself to lies and deceptions from your own heart, from other people. No, read, memorize, meditate on God's word, which is the sum total of truth. And let God's word serve as a grid and a guide to lead you to loving truth wherever you find it. Whatever is honorable and noble, think on that. And shun what's dishonorable. Whatever is just or right, meditate on that. Love justice wherever you find it. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent or worthy of praise, let those things grab your hearts and minds. And for that to happen, we need to actively be taking captive every thought. 
We need to actively be guarding what we let into our minds. I mean, some of us are health freaks, right? We think really hard about what we eat and let into our bodies. And we think very little comparatively about what we eat and let into our minds. So that means that you shouldn't click on every single clickbait. Every single little ad or tagline promising some juicy gossip about some celebrity relationship. Why do you even care? How is that going to fill your mind with what's honorable? Listen, it means that we shouldn't watch every single show that's entertaining. I mean, which category does ratchetness fit in? Pure? Lovely? Commendable? That means we should not read about or believe every single conspiracy theory. The real truth about X. No, we are to meditate on what's true. And that, that also means we shouldn't view people or circumstances only through a negative lens. I mean, we go back to the context of conflicts and interpersonal relationships, like what we saw with Euodia and Syntyche. Have you noticed how, how tempting it is in such situations to view the other person solely as a villain? As completely in the wrong and possessing no good traits? But what if in conflicts you step back and view the person through the lens of verse 8? Well, what's true this week? Well, what's true is that they're made in the image of God. And God loves them. Shouldn't I love them as well? I mean, think about if you, you've got problems in your marriage, you might understand there are some deep flaws in our marriage. Or in a different context, there are deep flaws in our church. I can dwell on those things, but, but do you equally think about what's excellent in our church? Is there anything praiseworthy in our marriage? Why then do I always look at what's negative and never call out and praise what's praiseworthy? More broadly, as we live in our society, I, I, I know there's a lot of injustice. But, but what's just? What's honorable? Praise God that we have laws. Amen. Right? Praise God that people do go, get locked up and go to jail. Right? And see, you, you understand this kind of mindset, these kind of guideposts that Paul gives here, these eight guideposts in verse 8, right, help to navigate our hearts to think about and praise God in all things. For all things, even when all things are not all right, is the mind that Paul himself displayed, even as he suffered much. How can Paul keep saying, I rejoice always, even in the midst of much sorrow? It's because of who God is and what he is doing all the time, all around me. Right? Paul can look at prison and persecution and problems in the church and see so many evidences of God's fingerprints. Prince and grace in his life. In the church, in his home, in, in prison, with the guards, with, with Nero even. Like Paul is able to find what God is doing in every single facet. Whatever is true, honorable, lovely, noteworthy, commendable, think on these things. And he tells us to model his model in verse 9. But you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me practice these. And again, with the amazing promise. And the God of peace 
will be with you. Let us be brothers. In all of life's problems, God is with you. And his peace is with you. Isaiah says, he will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on him. Amidst any conflict, pursue and find true peace. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us in our weaknesses. Lord, help us in our conflicts. Help us in hardships and persecutions to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge you. To run to your throne of grace in prayer. To run to the offending party in conflicts to reconcile because of how you run to us in Christ. How you've saved us, given us an end. We pray that you would honor Christ in our lives by keeping our eyes and minds stay on him. Help us to trust him more fully every single day. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.